Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey? Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have delivered your people from the bondage of sin and have given us a new master, even righteousness. We thank you, O God, that you have chosen to condescend to us, to speak to us after the manner of men, so that we, in our infirmity of our flesh, may yet know the truth and be set free from our ignorance and from death. Have mercy upon us, enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Renew and persuade our wills to embrace him and to walk in your ways, to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Draw near to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Very brief review. Last Sabbath we considered verse 17. Concerning the thanksgiving we offer to God, we saw that salvation is of the Lord. Not of man, God is to be thanked that we were the servants of sin, but have now obeyed from the heart. God delivers us from bondage, we saw. He is the one that makes our present reality of slavery to obedience the case, and therefore he receives the credit. We saw a rebuke to any who would seek to share in God's work of deliverance from the bondage to sin, and we saw an exhortation to glorify God, to praise and thank him for our salvation to avoid of thinking highly of ourselves or boasting that somehow we have made ourselves to differ. We saw in the second doctrine that there is an apostolic mold or type of doctrine into which God hands us over or into which God presses us in the preaching of his word, that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, we saw. We saw information in the first use that the doctrines of our faith are delivered to us by Christ. He, through his Holy Spirit, has caused prophets and apostles to arise, through whom he has had written down his will for us. Therefore, there are no other doctrines that are acceptable, but such as come from God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and he presses us into that scripture mold by his grace. We saw a rebuke to the doctrines and commandments of men. They have no power to save, no right over the conscience, and they're not recorded within God's oracles, and therefore they have no power over us. Finally, we saw an exhortation that we are to know the doctrines of our holy religion by the book where Christ has delivered his promises and his precepts. The Bible itself must be known by us as believers, otherwise we are liable to be deceived by men. We're to be like the Bereans 
who even when the Apostle Paul preached to them, searched out everything he said according to the word of God. And we're to pray that the Lord would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things that are there. Now then, let us consider after the manner of men, or I speak after the manner of men, from verses 18 and 19. First, we'll look at free from sin. Second, after the manner of men. And third, even so now. First then, free from sin. Let's read again verse 18. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. First, this being made free is an aorist participle. Aorist just means it's at a point in time, generally in the past, we would call it the preterite tense, something that happened in the past, and it's passive. It means that this was done to you by God, in other words, at a point in time, he made you free. Now, the participle means that it describes another verb, usually. So this participle is going to describe another verb. Being made free describes something else, and we'll see that in a little bit. But notice, this points us to the efficient cause of our freedom. We saw last week, John 8, 36, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. That's who's the doer here. When you're passive, something is done to you. Well, who is the active liberator? It's Jesus himself. Or as David Dixon says, we are made free by the omnipotent arm of God. He has all power. And so he can deliver us from sin. Remember, Lord, sin. This is a personification. It's a human figure of speech by which a thing, namely transgression of God's law, is spoken of as a person, a master to whom you are not to yield yourself. The Lord's sin has a guilt or a debt against you, and Lord's sin has the power or pollution of sin to defile you. And we'll see that master obedience, master righteousness, has the corresponding parts. Which brings us then, ye became the servants of righteousness. First is, ye became servants. Again, this is passive. This is not what you made yourselves by the power of your free will, by the wisdom of your own mind, by the goodness of your heart that you followed. No, God made you the servants of sin, or excuse me, the servants of righteousness in this case. He redeemed you. He freed you from the bondage of sin. He made you servants of righteousness. Ye were made the servants, in other words. Again, this is aorist, and it is passive as well. It happened at a point in time. It was done to you by God once for all. Calvin comments on this. What are then our preparations by the power of free will? Some people believe that you prepare yourself for the grace of God. You prepare yourself to be born again by your choices and by your wisdom and your will choosing to draw near to God. And then in response to your free will, what does God do? He then brings you out of the bondage of sin and brings you into the marvelous service of righteousness. Is that the case? Now, these are both passive. You were delivered by God's omnipotent power and you were made the servants of righteousness by that same power. Where then are our preparations by the power of free will, he asks, since the commencement of what is good proceeds from this manumission, 
So the beginning of our goodness starts when God releases us from our slavery, which he says the grace of God alone effects. God's grace causes us to be liberated. Where is our free will in all this? Well, it's made free. That's exactly the point. It's made free from the bondage of sin by God himself. Before that, it's completely in chains. It is a bondage of the will. This is the main verb, being made free. Remember, the participle describes the main verb. The participle was being made free, and then the main verb is ye became servants. In other words, we could read it this way. By means of being made free from sin, you were made into the servants of righteousness. They're simultaneous. There isn't a third state, in other words. Somewhere between bondage to sin and bondage to righteousness. No. Right at the very moment that Christ liberated you, he made you slaves of righteousness. That's the idea. Now, the final cause is mentioned here. An efficient cause is the power to accomplish something. What has the power to affect whatever this effect is? Christ is the one who has the power. He is the efficient cause. What is the final cause? That is the goal that the efficient cause had in mind when it did this thing. What is the goal that Christ set out to when he liberated us? It's to make us servants of righteousness. Master righteousness. We saw this last week. Why are we saved by God's grace through faith? Because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So then, if this is the final cause of our salvation, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? God forbid. This is the cause at the end of this whole design. God designs this thing, even our sanctification. Master righteousness, then, is the one to whom we are captive. Now notice, just as sin was personified, that's what we call this, the thing sin being personified as a person or a master, so is righteousness. You became slaves now of this different master, The chains are no longer chains of darkness and of death, but of light and of life. Now, we saw the twofold righteousness of the gospel recently. Remember, there's the righteousness of acceptance with God, justification, imputed to us, the same in all believers. Then there's the righteousness of God imparted. Master sin had the guilt and debt of sin held over us. Master righteousness has gospel imputation of Christ's righteousness lifting us up. Master sin had the pollution and the filthiness of going on in that sin. He had that over us. Master righteousness has sanctification, renewal in the image of God, and growing in grace, progress in holiness. These two masters are identified as having two parallel tracks, sin and righteousness. Look then at verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. I speak, he says, or literally in Greek, after the manner of men emphatically, I speak. 
Lego is the verb. It means to express rational thought. Concerning the manner of men, please open to Numbers chapter 5. We're going to do a survey of the Bible when it talks about the manner of men. What does that mean? What does it mean for something to be after the manner of men? Ezekiel 5 verse, or excuse me, Numbers 5 verse 6, page 155 of your pew Bibles. Speak unto the children of Israel, when a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit. There's the word, that men commit. That which is characteristic of men. That's what, that which comes forth from human nature. People are going to sin in human ways. That's the idea. This is a human way of speaking, Paul says. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 4, page 837 of your pew Bibles. In the Greek Septuagint, translated out of Hebrew into Greek, this same word is used in various contexts. First is the type of sin people commit. Then Ezekiel 4, verse 12. Ezekiel is commanded to do something that is unclean. You'll notice his objection in the Lord's resolution. Verse 12. And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes, and thou shalt bake it with the dung that, what? Cometh out of man. It is after the manner of men, in other words, in their sight. And the Lord said... Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, whither I will drive them. Now, God often gave the prophets figures to say, here, this is what God's going to do. I'm going to enact what's going to happen to you. You will eat defiled bread. Now, Ezekiel, take the dung of a man that comes out of a man and put it under your fire and cause that to bake your bread. Oh, that's disgusting, isn't it? Well, yes, that's exactly the point. You people have disgusted God. Now he's going to cause you to be disgusting among the people, among the Gentiles, whether he's going to drive you. Verse 14. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, my soul hath not been polluted. From, for from my youth, even up until now, have I not eaten of that which dieth of itself or is torn in pieces. Neither came there abominable flesh into my mouth. Then he said unto me, Lo, I have given thee cow's dung for man's dung, and thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. Okay, there's the thing that comes forth from man. It's ordinary to men, but there's a different type that comes forth from a cow. He says you can have the cows instead. That will keep you from this defilement. But here we see what is the manner of man. Turn over to Daniel chapter 7, page 903. You have the type of sin that men commit. You have the type of waste product that men can produce and that they do produce. Now, Daniel 7, verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man. You ever seen a bird's eye? Does it look like a human eye to you? Of course not. What about a cow's eye? Does that look like a human eye? No, but if you see a human eye, you know exactly what you're looking at. There's a certain type of eye, just like there are certain types of sin, just like there are certain types of waste products. There are different things that characterize man. 
Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, page 1149. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, page 1149. First we'll look at verse 4. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. The manner of man's wisdom is as follows. I did not preach or teach that way, Paul says. It was not your customary, ordinary human wisdom that you heard. It didn't come forth from the nature of man like sin does, or like your excrement, or like your eyes are all the same sort of eyes among men. No, it was different than the wisdom that comes forth from man. It was not the wisdom that is after the manner of men, in other words. That's his point. He says the same thing in verse 13. Turn over to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. There's a certain form of judgment that comes forth from men. They have their day in court that they grant to you and they make their judgments. He says, I'm not concerned with that. I don't care about the judgments that come forth from men. I concern myself with the judgment that is not after the manner of men, that comes from God himself, man's judgment. Chapter 10, he'll tell us that there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is what? Common to man. It's after the manner of men. It's ordinary for people to be tempted in those ways. James 3, 7, he refers to mankind. 1 Peter 2, 13, he refers to the creations of men or the ordinances of men that we're to be subject to. These are things that come forth from man. They are ordinary to man. They are characteristic of man. And here he says, he speaks. I speak, he says, after the manner of men. Now, this word speak means to express a thought. Your thinking, legain, is to speak forth your thoughts. It might be in a sermon or a discourse. Here, notice, this is applied to the written word of God. The written Bible is God speaking. After the manner of men, in this case, God identifies the form of speech is drawn from ordinary, customary human existence. Just like there's a type of existence that chickens lead, and there's a type of existence that man leads, he's going to illustrate this truth from the ordinary course of man. He's going to speak it. That is, he's going to put it in his oracles. The Spirit of Almighty God speaks to us in the Bible. It's not merely the record of Paul's thoughts, no. It is God speaking to us. I speak then after the manner of men, he says. And when God spoke by the prophets, when he spoke by the apostles, sometimes he would borrow from the manner of men. He would speak in such a way as was customary for people to hear what they expected, what they knew, what was a common feature of their existence like the type of eyes people have, or the type of sins, or the type of temptations, or the wisdom of man. All these things are characteristic of man's condition. Why? 
Why did the Holy Spirit choose to speak in such a way? Well, he tells us. Let's turn back to Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 19, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. Here the Spirit of God explains to us, we are infirmed. Because we have this incapacity, this weakness, this impotence, this lack of insight, because of this, God says, I will give you an illustration common to your life. I will show you something that's ordinary to you. This weakness we've seen in Romans 14, the weak brother, he lacks understanding, doesn't he? He lacks an insight into the proper adjustment of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And therefore, he will not have meats that he thinks might be defiled. He can't eat them where the the brother who knows, he can eat those things, that's fine. I can't defile the creation of God. If they tell you it's offered to an idol, don't eat it for his sake because you'll defile his conscience as a heathen. He'll think you approve of his religion. But as far as the eating of the meat itself, there's no problem at all. Demons don't inhabit God's creation in that sense and defile it for a Christian. No, we give thanks for our food. We know that. But the weak brother does not have the insight. He does not have the quality of character or of mind to be able to partake. And that's okay. That's where he's at. You bear with his weakness. Here God says, you people are weak. And because of this infirmity of your flesh, I'm going to give you an illustration without giving you the direct truth as it is. I'm going to cover it in an illustration so that you can understand better. Diodati says of this weakness, it is the natural vice of ignorance and perverseness of understanding, which remaineth in believers and makes spiritual things hard for them to apprehend in their own natural sense and make good use of them. Okay, so are we enlightened in our minds? Yes. Are we perfected in our minds? No. And because we're not perfected, God speaks to us in these ways, specifically the Romans. He was speaking to them because they had perverseness remaining in their understanding, because they continued to have natural vice. They still struggled. And so here God condescends, you might say, to the weakness of his people. Then in the third place, even so, now. Let's read the rest of verse 19. For as ye have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so, now, yield your members, servants, to righteousness, unto holiness. Now, first is this word, as. For as ye have yielded... There's actually a construction followed here where it gives two parts of a comparison. As this, so that. And we'll see that later. Even so now. As it was in the past, even so. That's the comparison. You had a past life. You have a present life. He's going to compare them for us. As you did this, so you must do that. As ye have yielded. We saw this verb. It means to present yourself, hand yourself over, surrender yourself. Or in army, we saw it was like weapons being presented to your drill sergeant. You're mustering to go to battle. Or here, in the idea of slavery, you present yourself to your slave master for your orders. What will you have me to do? Please tell me. I will do it. That's the idea here. You yielded yourself This again is aorist, 
And it is an indicative and also an active verb. It's something you did. You actually went and yielded yourself up to uncleanness. Now, this word means something that is worthless, waste. It's like in a grave, you might have decaying flesh. Is that something that you think is worth much? No, of course not. That's why people bury it out of sight so they don't have to smell it. Whether animal or especially human flesh, we honor their flesh for the sake of the spirit. But in an animal, we still want to bury it, get it out of sight. It's gross. It's disgusting. I don't want to smell those smells. That's the idea of this kind of behavior. It is defiling. It is unclean. It is impure. And the opposite is holiness. Holiness is like cleanliness before God. It is pleasing in his sight. It has a beautiful uh, aroma, the beauty of holiness the Bible talks about. The other is uncleanness. It is foul. It is defiling. That's the idea here. Our Lord uses this as those full of dead men's bones. That's the idea. And all what? All uncleanness. Not, you're not holy. You look holy on the outside, he says, but on the inside, you got all of this uncleanness. That was the new master. Remember he said sin was our master? Now he says this disgusting, filthy, rotting corpse is your master. And you used to yield yourself actively of your own volition. You gave yourself up to this master. And what were her orders? What were, what were the orders of this mistress in uncleanness? Iniquity unto iniquity. Now the word here is anomia. Namas is law. Anomia means, nope, you don't have the law. Either by ignorance, you don't know the law, as the Gentiles who have not the law, they are anomia. But it generally refers to someone who will not submit to the law. Anomia. He will transgress. He will commit iniquity. He will disregard the law. Thayer says this word iniquity properly means the condition of one without law, either because ignorant of it or because violating it. But then it comes to mean, he says, contempt and violation of law, iniquity, wickedness. This is the same word where John says sin is Iniquity, sin is anomia, sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, verse 14. Our catechism sums that up. What is sin? Sin is any want of transgression of or, or want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is violating God's law. Okay, now it goes from one iniquity unto iniquity. Those are her orders. Uncleanness says, do lawlessness and do more lawlessness, and do lawlessness that leads you to more lawlessness. That's your marching orders. Be dedicated to lawlessness. Grow in your practice of lawlessness. Persevere in your lawlessness. Progress in the callousness of your heart. Don't listen to God's commandments. Don't care about his laws whether laws of nature that you know on your heart are written or laws revealed in Scripture. Be lawless. Those are the orders of mistress uncleanness. Uncleanness tells you, do iniquity, continue to be more and more lawless. Then comes in master righteousness in the second part here. Even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness, 
unto holiness, even so now corresponds with just as. Just as you yielded yourself, that is, in the past you did this, even so now, he says, there is a present condition as opposed to your past history. David Dixon comments, he says, Now tis fitting that with equal, equal industry at least you yield your members' servants unto righteousness and to holy, holiness, not to be less studious of doing well than heretofore you have been of sinning and doing ill. Industry is where you work hard. Industrious. That's a virtue the Bible commands. Diligence, excellence, attention to detail, get the job all the way done. A sluggard, what does he do? Does he give attention to detail? Nope. Does he get the job all the way done? Nope. Does he work hard at it? Nope. So industry is the opposite. It's all those virtues coming together. We were industrious in our life of sin. We worked hard to sin. Right? And he says, that's how you used to be. Now you have a new master, namely righteousness. He has tasks for you to do the opposite of uncleanness, the opposite of lawlessness. This new master says, I have work for you to do. And Dixon says we should be at least as industrious as we once were in our sins toward the doing of what pleases God. Even so now, yield your members. This is the aorist imperative. Remember, the imperative is one will, God in his will speaking to your will. I want you to do something. I want you to choose something. That's what he's saying. Choose then to yield yourself. And the aorist means contract it down as if it were one point in time. Do it now. Do it now urgently do it immediately be determined yield your members now this is the same phrase from verse 13 the apostle said neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin but what yield yourselves unto god here he says yield your members as servants of righteousness. Think about that for a moment. Verse 13 said to yield yourselves to God. Verse 19 says yield yourselves as servants unto righteousness. Do you know what that's doing? That's taking righteousness or obedience to God and saying that's the same as God himself. If you serve or slave for righteousness, you are serving or slaving for God. In fact, he replaces the words. He uses righteousness as a substitute for what he said in verse 13 was God himself. God is personified as his righteous commandments. God is our master when we submit to the master obedience or the master righteousness, because ultimately it's God who issues the commandments. You'll notice this in the Bible. Have you ever seen David say that he would raise his hands in praise to God's word? Why does he say that? Why does he lift up his hands to the commandments of God? Isn't that bibliolatry, worship of the Bible? Yeah, 
because God's speaking to me in the Bible. So, of course, I'm going to worship and honor his word. He has exalted his word above all his name, above all of his personal attributes and characteristics. He says, hear this, listen to me. So when we serve righteousness or his commandments written in scripture, it's listening to God himself. When we yield ourselves to his commandments, we're actually yielding ourselves to God himself. And what does God say is the end game of his slavery? What is it that he wants us to be about? Does he say, well, now I don't care. Like your mistress uncleanness, I want you to disregard my law and go on disregarding my law and grow in callous disregard for my law. Is that what he says? That's the exact opposite. This mistress uncleanness, her opposite is holiness. Hagiosmos, being purified from your evil deeds. It's the opposite of uncleanness. A life purified by God's spirit from every idol, dedicated to his worship, and seeking his glory in all things. The prophet said that the horses would have bells, and those bells, what would be written on there is the same thing that used to be on the priest's breastplate, holiness unto the Lord. Now, a horse is an unclean animal. And therefore, for an unclean animal to be holiness unto the Lord means holiness has gone pretty far. It's diffused itself out into all the areas of our lives. And that's what God says. Ye are to be holy people, a kingdom of priests. Your life is to be purified from all the idols. Your life is to be dedicated just as much as Aaron's life was dedicated to the worship of God. And in all things else that you do, seek the glory of God. Let it be holiness unto the Lord. Is that not what the apostle said? In whatsoever thing you do, whether in word, what you say, or in deed, what you do, do it all as unto Christ, not as unto men. Holiness unto the Lord. When God gives us this new master, Master righteousness, his orders are, Be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So you are to be holy in all manner of conversation, the Apostle Peter says. Diodati again, to confirm and advance your sanctification in this world until it be perfected in heaven. That's the idea. Yield your members, servants to righteousness, unto holiness, sanctification, growing in grace, until at last it is perfected in heaven. William Plummer, he says, Righteousness unto holiness is growing conformity to God, embracing all acts of sobriety, equity, and piety, as they had sinned with a will, So now he exhorts them to yield their whole natures to the service of God. You see that? You were given over completely to your sin. You did it willingly and cheerfully, even though you had the worst of mistresses, namely uncleanness like this rotting corpse. Now you have a better master. Yield yourselves now as you did then. Doctrines and uses. First doctrine 
The Spirit of God occasionally accommodates to human things in Scripture. Remember the apostle said, I speak humanly. I speak after the manner of men. Just like there's a human type of I, so my speech now is a human type of speech. That is something well known among you, recognizable and ordinary. But note, first of information, not all things in Scripture are accommodations. People who do not like the Bible will say that everything it says is an accommodation to man, to human things. So when God says X and they don't like X, they want to believe non-X, they will say, well, God's accommodating himself to that culture at that time. Have you ever heard that? Paul's a chauvinist. Okay, so his words about women, we don't take those seriously because it arises out of the Jewish culture of the first century AD and the Roman culture and the Greek culture and the Assyrian culture and the Egyptian. Well, oh, never mind. Oh, not that it's universally recognized. No, it's just him. He's a chauvinist. I had a guy tell me he wishes he could take Paul's nose and bend it off, he told me, because of what he said about women. So they think, well, all the Bible's accommodation. It's not really the truth. Everything's just after the manner of men. And they take the Bible to be like a wax nose, that they can bend it whichever way they want. Everything is an accommodation for the leftists. This is where the church went horribly wrong in the early church. They turned the Bible into an allegory. Every single thing had to be interpreted allegorically. Why? Because it's all figurative after all. So what can we do with the Bible? Make it say whatever we want. Now, what you want may be good. What you want may be bad. But the problem is twisting Scripture to what you want. Are there figures of speech in the Bible? Yes. In fact, there is an allegory explicitly identified. Galatians 4.24, God uses the figure common to men of an allegory. He speaks after the manner of men. God uses personification in this very passage, Romans 6. We've seen the master sin. We've seen the master obedience. We've seen the master righteousness. We've seen the master uncleanness. That's a personification. This thing, namely violation of law, is now spoken of as a person to whom you yield yourself as a master. And you are the slave. The Bible uses paradoxes or verbal contradictions. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 8 through 10. Now, by the way, it's not a real paradox. He's not really contradicting himself there in that passage, but he's using things that sound contradictory. How can you be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, Paul? Well, in different respects. Sorrowful in this respect, rejoicing in this respect. But he doesn't tell you that. He uses the figure of speech paradox to jar you a little bit to make you think about, well, what are you talking about? so that you think further about his labors for the church of God. God uses human passions. He describes himself as having physical characteristics like feathers, a hand, an arm, eyes. He describes all these things. He says that he repents. Then he says he doesn't repent. 1 Samuel 15, verses 29 and 35. God has human things ascribed to him. Then we have the figure of speech known as a synecdoche. It's where one thing is put for another. For example, when we read that all Israel appeared before Moses, 
Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. It's actually the elders who appear. And we find that out as you read through the Old Testament. It says all Israel, then it says the elders. Well, how is that? Because the part is put for the whole. The whole is spoken of as showing up, but it's only a part that was there. The same in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. We see a, a part for the whole as well as the whole for the part. Then we have a sign for the thing signified. Exodus 12, 21 or Luke 22, verse 20. The cup is the testament, for example. Well, no, it's not. But the figure of speech is used. The cup is what contains the, the wine, right? So the cup represents the wine. The wine represents the blood. These are all synecdoches. These are figures of speech. One thing put for another. So the Spirit of God does actually use these human figures of speech. He does accommodate himself to the weakness of our flesh, not to blind us with falsehood, but to enlighten our minds with truth in ways that we can more easily understand. This then is a rebuke in the second use. Yes, the Spirit of God occasionally accommodates to human things, but... To any who would make all of Scripture figurative, like the Romantics, the liberals, those who indulge in allegories, that would make all the Bible a figure of speech. Every single last thing. But notice, the Spirit of God says, concerning this illustration of slavery, I speak to you after the manner of men. He doesn't say, by the way, that's true of the entire epistle to the Romans, does he? No, it's this specific illustration. He's speaking in a mere human way, not in every single statement. People who want to justify their errors, who want to build up their irrationalities, they'll make the Bible a bunch of allegories. The Gnostics did this very thing. Irenaeus, in his book Against Heresies, he says it's like if you had a statue that honored a king, and it was made out of these jewels and gold and silver, nicely arranged, looked just like the king. Everybody would know, well, that's the statue of the king. He says, these men take the Bible, and they take all the jewels, and they arrange them however they want it to look, like a fox or a bear or a dog or something. And then the people look at it, and they say, wow, look at those beautiful jewels. They have the Bible in their system, but they don't have it arranged how the Bible's arranged. They don't have it put together how God put it together. No, they take it and they say, well, we have an allegory here. There were 12 apostles. That proves that there were four gods at the beginning who gave birth to eight. And there's the total of 12, you see. Jesus was on the earth for 30 years. There are 30 demiurges in our system. And therefore, you can prove our system by looking with the allegorical method at the, the parables of Jesus. They literally said these things. Because they said, all of the Bible is figurative. All of the Bible is uh, some kind of massive figure of speech. And then they could justify any of their doctrines by appeal to these figures of speech. Those who make the substance of Scripture figurative rather than merely the modes of expression also are mistaken. Some people say the thing communicated is a figure of speech, not just the manner of its communication. Okay, so there's the manner of the communication as I'm using this figure of speech where I personify sin as a master. I personify righteousness as a master. But you know what he's saying. 
He's talking about the literal state of fallen men who serve sin. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the literal state of those who are redeemed by Christ in service to God's righteousness. That's actually what he's saying. And they will say, well, that's a figure of speech too. That's not really true. After all, man, God's so high above us, how could he tell us stuff we understand? God literally removed Saul from reigning over Israel, though he used a figure of speech, that he repented of making Saul king. You see, there's a difference there. We must believe in the literal truth communicated, though God used the manner of men. Though he used a figure of speech, we must believe the truth. Let us then, in the third use, read the Bible with understanding. Let us discern things that differ. How do we detect then figurative language? How do we know if the Bible is using a figure of speech? How can we know that for certainty? Well, here it tells us. Galatians 4, he told us, this is an allegory. Okay, so now we know it's a figure of speech. But what about other parts where God uses them and he doesn't say, now I'm speaking to you after the manner of men. Let me give you a few simple rules which I think will cover most cases. One, does the passage, if taken literally, contradict the plain truth delivered clearly somewhere else in the Bible? Not somewhere else in your tradition. Not somewhere else in your feelings. Not somewhere else in philosophy with worldly wisdom. Not somewhere else in how you were trained and educated, but somewhere else in God's word. He delivers things plainly. He said, for example, the Lord is not a man that he should repent. That's very clear, isn't it? God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't do wrong and have to change his ways. So then a couple verses later when it says he repents, you can mark it down. That's figurative language because it contradicts a plain statement that God does not repent. And it also contradicts in the next place one of the perfections of God. God cannot change. You know why God cannot change? What does change mean? It means you become different. You either become better, you improve yourself, that's a change, or you get worse, which means you downgrade your existence. You can go from good to bad, right? You can get worse at something. Your virtues and characteristics, you can lose those and you can pick up vices, right? You can get better, you can get worse, or you can get different. None of those apply to God. God cannot improve himself. He is the greatest of all beings. He cannot get worse. He cannot do iniquity. He can't get down into the wickedness of man and become an evil being. That's not possible. And he's so great and glorious that he can't become different from himself. He's infinite in all of his attributes. There's nothing that can be added to him. There's nothing that can be subtracted from him. God then cannot change. And if the Bible seems to assert that he did, you can mark it down. It's a figure of speech. God is not intending to contradict and overthrow basic truth by using figures after the manner of men to help us understand. So that's the second rule. If something in the scripture seems to detract from the perfections of God. Or in the third place, if you read a passage and it seems to detract from those great principles of scripture... That is the doctrines, not just the plain statements of a particular text, but the grand doctrines of Scripture, you can mark it down. It's not what you're reading, literally, it's a figure of speech. 
God has delivered the great principles of his grace, the truth concerning his law, the moral duties of man delivered clearly in the Bible. So if you read something in the epistles of Paul, that's what this whole chapter is about. They read what he was saying about justification and they say, well, that means I can keep on sinning. That's a violation of the great moral principle of God as a legislator. That somehow he loses his right as legislator because of his superabounding grace in the gospel. No, you have misunderstood the Bible. You have perverted and corrupted it. And therefore you must understand it properly. Now some people say, they read Romans 9, it's clearly talking about God's sovereignty. Well that can't be the case because I have this philosophical doctrine called free will. And therefore, man has to have some share in his salvation. Otherwise, we're like robots. Man's reason, right? I had somebody tell me recently, well, when you see a picture of your ancestors, don't you remember them with joy? Well, then why shouldn't we have pictures of the saints and of Jesus so that we can remember them with joy? Human reason. Does the Bible support that opinion? No. But it seems good to us, and it's handed down in our tradition, which we say is apostolic. So... Does the Bible deliver this thing that you say somehow makes you not have to understand Romans 9 and what it says? No. It's your philosophy. It's your reason. It's your feelings. I don't feel like I could love a God like that. So, do your feelings enter into the grand scheme of interpreting the Bible? Some people think it does. What does that passage say to you, sister? Brother, how do you feel about that? What do you think he's trying to get across? Well, does it matter what I think? Does it matter how you feel? Does it matter how all of us take a vote and democratically say, I'm going to elect Romans 9 not to be what it says? It's either true or it's not. It's either delivered in the Bible or it's not. And when you're evaluating figurative statements, use the Bible, not yourself, not tradition, not your feelings, not your friends, not the councils, nothing but the Bible itself will tell you whether it's a figure of speech. Everything else is people just making things up. Okay, second doctrine. Our slavery to righteousness must be as willing as was our slavery to uncleanness. Our slavery to righteousness must be as willing as was our slavery to uncleanness. Remember, the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears, what did Jesus say about her when they tried to rebuke her? Tell her to go away. Doesn't he know what kind of woman that is? Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much, right? If you have been delivered from the bondage of uncleanness and God has lifted you out of the mire of lawlessness... Should you not be as willing to serve righteousness unto holiness as you once were in that other lifestyle? That's the point of the comparison. As it was back then, even so let it be now. Let your will enter in, choose and long after these things. Let us keep God's commandments. Let us run, not just walk in his commandments, much less crawl in his commandments. Let us run in the way of his commandments. Second use, if our slavery to righteousness must be as willing as was our slavery to uncleanness, this is a rebuke to our sluggishness. Are we diligent to know the will of God? Do we have that level of industry that David Dixon was talking about? That hard work 
doing it right away with all of our might, getting it completely done. Do we want to know the will of God? Do we want to do the will of God? Let's think about some vanities that we tend to do. Have you ever met somebody who can tell you, oh yeah, Daryl Strawberry batted this batting percentage in this year when he played for the New York Mets. They can remember statistics like nobody's business about things that at the end of the day, you know, Daryl Strawberry is probably a nice enough guy, but does it really matter? Does his batting average actually matter for the 1992 New York Mets? Probably not. Probably meant something to him. His mom and dad were probably very proud But does it really affect or impact my life in some grand, life-changing way? No. And that's why our minds can so easily remember things like that. Ask a person who knows these statistics about sports ball, do you know what it says in the book of Exodus? Are you familiar with the book of Ezra? Have you read the book of Romans? Have you read the Bible from the beginning to the end? Have you meditated on its contents? Have you tried to practice them in your lives? What? Why would I do that? That's not important. What's important is Daryl Strawberry, or this car, that car, these parts, or these parts, this movie. Oh, this was great. Do we have a hunger for the preaching of God's word? Do we long to worship God? Do we prioritize praying to him? Do we delight in doing good to our neighbor? Do we have a fanatic zeal for the good name of our neighbor? Are we zealous, in other words, in the servant's service of righteousness unto holiness as we once were for these vanities of the Gentiles that mean nothing. Not to mention the lawless wickedness where people abandon themselves to evil. Just think about the vanities of this life. Things that at the end of your life, if you invested time and energy, would it really make your life that much better? Probably not. But if you invest your life in the things that God says are valuable, in loving him, in loving your neighbor, and seeking his glory, will you have any regrets? No. The things you'll regret are the vanities you wasted your time on. So this is a rebuke to our sluggishness, all of us. Do we desire to know and to do the will of God in the same way that we desired our old vanities? Are we addicted to Uh, pointless and vain trivialities? Well, if so, get rid of them. Use that energy to glorify God and to serve him. And then an exhortation. Let us be sold out for Christ. Let us be completely his. Let us present ourselves. Hand yourself over, he says. Give yourself up to this new master righteousness unto holiness. Leave nothing for the old master. Don't give him a foothold and say, you know, most of me is dedicated to Christ, but I got a couple rooms here I reserve for you so that when you want to come and tell me what to do, I'm going to make you welcome. Will you sin if you dedicate your whole life to Christ? Yes, you will. You will occasionally slip. You will sin in a daily, minute-by-minute basis, perhaps. You will sin, but will you want to? Will you make the sin feel welcome and say, I want you here. I'd just like to keep you a little bit longer. Can I have just one more night with you, baby? No. Kick out the bum. Get rid of this rotting corpse that wants to live in your house. Think of it that way. Would you want a rotting dead body filled with uncleanness, sitting around telling you what to do, smelling the stench of death, 
from this mistress uncleanness, telling you to be lawless and wicked and disobedient? We will consider this, God willing, later. But let me read to you Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. May we be such a people devoted to our Lord, offering ourselves up as a living sacrifice. That is the altar in the church. It is in the hearts of God's people where they offer their bodies up and say, Lord, I am yours. I present my members as servants to righteousness unto holiness. Amen.